Welcome to Girls on Pop episode 32. Almost at 50. We're more than halfway to 50. Oh, I'm your co-host, Marina Antunes, joined today by fellow co-host. I'm Ashley Lynch. We are going to talk stuff today. Lots of stuff. Well, you've been busy. I have not been watching a lot of things. I, I, I have been busy in so many different ways, but I always try to make sure it's like, there's always this mad dash when we decide to record where at the very end it's like, oh my God, I need to cram in like a bunch of stuff. So I have things to talk about. So I did that last night. We finally watched, um, we'll talk about it like later. Cause I know you've seen it already, but the, the new Dr. Strange, cause it's now on uh, VOD and, uh, we started it last night at, I don't know, like 9.30 or something. And by like 10.15, Dan's like, okay, let's go to bed. You're falling asleep. I'm like, no, no, I got to finish it before we record in the morning. We got to watch it tonight. Just take a pause. And I made coffee and then I was fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But let's start by a- anything other than like just stuff we've been watching that you want to talk about. I, I have been out of the news cycle for a while, so I don't know if there's been any. I mean, the biggest news thing I saw, and I don't really have anything to like really say about it, but I just saw this this morning, is that um, Top Gun Maverick has become the first film of 2022 to cross a billion dollars. Wow. If you had asked me what movie this year was going to be like the billion dollar box office movie i would not have guessed it would have been top gun i I thought the movie was going to do fine i did not think it was going to be like this off the rail successful yeah and apparently they're bringing it back into imax for the july long weekend so that you know that makes total sense like if there if there's any movie that's an imax movie it feels like this is that movie Agreed. And that's how we saw it. Yep. That's for the two times I saw it. That's how I saw it. Yep. Oh man. But yeah, so that's news. Uh, Oh, the only other thing I saw was that Cineplex is going to start charging a service fee for movie ticket purchases online. Did you see this? No. So just like buying a movie ticket, you have to pay. Yeah, so that's that's just an increase in ticket price. That's not a service charge. Well, this is it. Well, so apparently, if you're a member, like like I know that you have their month monthly membership, mm-hmm. the the booking fee is waived. Okay, but it's either a dollar twenty five or a dollar fifty per ticket. That's a lot. It's a lot. Like of I was money. thinking, like twenty five cents. You know, okay, whatever. But that's a lot of money. This is it. When I saw that, I was like, what? Uh, that, that just feels so cheap. It's like, I, it does. I get that theaters are in a, I want to say precarious position right now. Yeah. But at the same time, that just feels like cheap gouging. Agreed. Agreed. That's going to drive money. more people away than it's going to earn the money. This is it. This or is sell it. passes. Agreed. Uh, okay, well, but the, let, do, let's do talk about some some stuff that we've been watching, uh, an assortment of TV and movies, and let's start with something that we've both seen, which recently dropped on Netflix, and that's Spiderhead. Yeah, and it's the it's it's the Miles Teller Joseph Kaczynski. This is the other Joseph Kaczynski <laughs> Miles Teller film. They're having a moment, these two. Apparently so. Um, so this is uh, an adaptation of a short story. Okay, so I was totally shocked when the credits starts to roll. It's like New York Times production. I'm like, what the hell is this? And then, of course, it turns out it was 
it's based on a short story that appeared in the New York Times uh, by George Sanders. Um, and it's basically about this facility in the middle of nowhere where people uh, have opted to. It sounds like they've chosen to be there in order to like mitigate their prison sentences, right? In the in the original article or in the film? No, in the film. I haven't actually read the original. No, story. the in the film, it, they it it pretty explicitly states that everyone there is basically like. They've chosen in the sense of this is what they can do in lieu of staying in prison. Prison, yeah. They're they're all basically convicted prisoners. Uh, Miles Teller, in this case, his character, um, would basically crash a car while drinking and driving and killed the the other two occupants in the car. And that's why he was in prison. Instead, he's opted to be a guinea pig in this drug experimentation on a secret base called Spiderhead. Okay, that was the way better uh, write-up than I could have given it. I, what'd you think? Honestly, um, the, the, the really short version is I can't remember a time when I've been so bored watching a movie <laughs> as I have watching Spiderhead. It, the, the movie's like almost devoid of story. It's aggressively devoid of story. Um, the like, I I actually didn't know that this was based on like a New York Times article, and that there's anything real to this. And if they maybe no, tried to make there it, was, there isn't. There was a short story. Okay, a short story that appeared in the New York Times. Okay, um, because it's if they made it feel like a little bit more grounded and realistic rather than like whimsical then maybe it would have been more interesting um there just isn't much here is the problem it ends up feeling like 25 percent of a mediocre black mirror episode Mm, stretched out to an entire film and when you have like any given episode of black mirror doing a better hey technology unchecked is bad kind of thing um, going on then, you know, because that's ultimately all this film has to say is like, hey, maybe we shouldn't just like allow people to, you know, experiment with drugs on people randomly and play God. Maybe that's a bad idea. No shit. You know, it's like this and it's got a great cast is the thing. It looks pretty, but there's just no story here. And I was so bored watching the entire thing. And I was so happy when it was finally over. I agree. I found it very lackluster. For me, the the shining uh, moments of excitement for this movie are Chris Hemsworth unhinged. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's, he's very good at shifting between serious and just crazed. And it's fun to watch. But honestly... Miles Teller feels completely like he's swimming in nothing. He's just so uninspired, which is sad because he's a good actor. But Hemsworth at least was having fun with it. He, yeah. He, he was, for me, the best part of the movie. The whole thing felt like Kaczynski was trying to like make his ex machina. It kind of had that vibe yeah. complete to a scene where you've got Chris Hemsworth dancing. Yeah, that's you true. Know? And, but at the same time, it's like it really shows the... Uh, the gulf between 
you know, a filmmaker like Alex Garland and a filmmaker like Joseph Kaczynski. Yeah. 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 So I, I don't know if I could recommend this to be honest. No, I, I would say, I would say avoid this movie yeah, quite honestly. Although, you know, I've got friends who, who have really dug it. So it's, you know, they had a complete different opposite reaction to this movie. So I don't know, maybe there's something about the subject material that, might personally connect with you and you might find yourself invested in it. I did not. No. I was so detached from this film and I just didn't care about anything or anyone. And nothing is that make really kind of like there's breadcrumbs that try to lead to a mystery in the in the movie, but none of it leads to anything. They're like, oh, maybe the drugs are all fake and this is all just placebo. It's like, no, no, it's all still just like drugs and you know, it, it is what it is on the surface of what you were told from page one. Yep, pretty much. There's no mystery. So it's, I don't know. I, I was very disappointed by it. Yeah, I wasn't a fan either. Um, the Black Phone. Yeah. What is this? So this is the, the latest Blumhouse film from uh, Scott Derrickson and writer C. Cargill, uh, C. Robert Cargill. Um, who the guys who did the last Doctor Strange movie and uh, or like the first Doctor Strange movie and also uh, Sinister and they instead of Derrickson dropped out of doing um, Strange 2 decided like the whole film was to fit into the Marvel Jigsaw puzzle was not the film that he wanted to make and so he Said I'm gonna I'm gonna stay on as exec producer and go off and do this other film that we've got green light to do and they went and did Black Phone. Um, and Black Phone is based on a Joe Hill um, story, a short story. Joe Hill, of course, being um, Stephen King's son um, and a great horror writer in his own right. And it's basically about um, a kidnapper played by Ethan Hawke who's kidnapping kids in the neighborhood and locking them in his basement and then seemingly eventually killing them and we follow this one kid who gets kidnapped and locked in the basement and in the basement is this um, unwired unworking black phone that's just kind of like bolted to the wall it's not connected to anything but all of a sudden it starts to ring and the kid picks it up and he's hearing the voices of the other kids who have been killed by the serial killer. And they've all sort of left clues and advice to try to help this kid survive. And the whole movie ends up being a lot of little pieces being put onto the chessboard one after another and piling up to get to that point basically five minutes before the end of the film when you can pay off every one of them all at once and it just kind of feels really satisfied and you're like oh shit it was all building to this and it was amazing um it's a it's a it's a good film it's a good little kind of supernatural thriller um that is it's just like a fun ride and pretty original and and i enjoyed it it's not the most incredible movie i've ever seen but it was definitely worth seeing, and I dug it. That's awesome. I I keep forgetting that this is the Ethan Hawke movie because the title is just feels so uninspired. 
But I did really like some of the images that they've been using for the marketing of this movie. They're really, really uh, intense. And I yeah, the, the Ethan Hawke has this like unique devil mask that yeah. he's, he's wearing to basically disguise his identity in the movie, and and the the marketing has very much leaned into the aesthetic of that mask. Yeah, it, 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 it's working for me. So I, it's one I definitely want to see. We'll, we'll I'll probably get, catch up with it on VOD at this point because I won't have time to see it in theaters. But I'm glad to hear it's a good one. That's great. Yeah, that, this one just came out this last weekend, so it yeah. is it is fresh. Excellent. Um, something else that dropped on Netflix that I uh, sat down to watch because I really like J Lo, <laughs> and I have no qualms about saying that is Halftime, which is the new documentary um, uh, from Amanda Michelli on uh, basically J Lo's career leading up to the Super Bowl extravaganza that she did with Shakira a couple of years ago. Um, it's good. I I mean, it's very. She's not an executive producer on it. I don't know if her company executive produced the the film. I would assume that they probably have. So it is very, you know, soft on her. But it's a really interesting portrait of a woman who uh, is often has often been blind and been at the center of, um, uh, I guess, tabloid scandals, and whose uh, personal life has been. Uh, put out to uh, for everyone to sort of gawk at and she's still here and she's still doing stuff and she's you know more comfortable now than she was when she started and uh, if I could look like uh, JLo at 50 I'd be uh, super super happy never gonna happen yeah I know seriously have aspirations <laughs> I, I, I think we all kind of want that yeah, I, I do really like J-Lo. I've always kind of appreciated her kind of like no bullshit approach. And, you know, she's always been very sort of like stoic and, you know, people often call her cold and a bitch. But it's just if you work as hard as she does and you do as many things as she does, you're not you're not always going to be the nice person in the room. Like shit needs well, to and she. Done. She's had staying power, like in, yes. in any sort of entertainment industry. The, the the thing that no one really, you know, loves to say out loud is, but like, as soon as you hit like twenty eight or thirty, it's like your ability to make money as a woman in any entertainment industry goes away. Yeah, and until you are old enough to come back and play the old matron. And, but Jennifer Lopez has never gone away. She is sustained throughout all the way up to 50 and is still playing, you know, a drop-dead sexy woman whenever she's in a film or, do, or doing music or doing whatever it is that she yeah. wants to do. Yeah. Um, and I think that in and of itself is incredible. But the, the one thing that really... I don't want to say turned around because it never really turned around on Jennifer Lopez, but really just kind of shot her up in my estimation um, was watching Hustlers because as far as I was concerned, I thought she gave an Oscar witty performance in that movie. And it was a legit crime that she did not get nominated and win for that movie. Cause I think she deserved it. 
Yeah. And the, the film kind of, I mean, it's called halftime for a couple of reasons. You know, she's, you know, basically at the halfway point of her career at this point. And the, the movie does center quite a bit on the drama. And I didn't realize there had been this much drama behind the, the halftime show that she and Shakira did. I know, I remember it was a big deal when it was announced that they were going to have two acts uh, host the Super Bowl, which is unheard of. It's only like 12 minutes or, you know, uh, 18 minutes in total, which doesn't give each each artist enough time to really do much of anything. And you have to consider they have to like basically assemble and disassemble the stage in that halftime period. But um, there was a lot of behind the scenes drama that happened as well. And I didn't realize that there were so many, I mean, it makes sense looking back on it, but there were a lot of political inclinations that were kind of pushing against her and Shakira's performance. And then, you know, there's it does follow kind of that, re-rise of her acting career with Hustlers and and because everything was kind of coming together at the same time in 2020 2020 I guess it was um or 2021 I don't remember at this point but it's I I really enjoyed the documentary I thought it was really well done and you know she comes across as this very you know human person who is you know both nice and sometimes not because that's just the way things are it doesn't paint her as like this you know, uh, savior or anything, but it certainly paints her in a very good light. And I like her. So I was already kind of biased going in. I'll fully admit it. But I, I thought it's not like a, any, a groundbreaking documentary. It's a lot of talking heads, a lot of behind the scenes footage. Um, Michelle clearly had unprecedented access to, you know, uh, JLo behind the scenes and her family. There's a lot of scenes of her interacting with her siblings and her parents um, and her kids um, and her team. So uh, it is what it is. I, I thought it was great. It was a sort of a good, a nice inside look at this woman who is always in the public spotlight, but you never really get to see her as herself. And this kind of felt like pulling back a little bit of a layer, an onion skin of Jennifer Lopez. I'm sure it's all still very, there's way more than that, but you know, for a little more insight into the artist that she is. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was quite good. So that was uh, halftime and it's now streaming on Netflix. Uh, Watcher. Yeah. So this is uh Watcher is a, a movie that I've been hearing about and was kind of excited to check out and it finally hit VOD. So I was able to finally see it, but it's based, it's a, uh, it's a very simple kind of a horror thriller premise where it is uh, Micah Monroe um, is a young woman who travels to uh, uh, Bucharest with her husband uh, for his job and they basically get set up in this apartment that has this enormous like picture window that fills up the entire wall and she becomes um, kind of obsessed with this window in the building across the way where she thinks this guy is watching her. And it kind of spirals out from there in a real sort of like paranoid, I think this guy is following me um, sort of situation, which becomes like a kind of like terrorism of manners sort of thing where you like the police get involved. It's like, well, has he done anything? No, he's just like looking at me. It's like, well, you know, 
is it possible that you're just reading something that's just like, no, he's like coming after me and it's like, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and it's, it's all aided by the fact that she's basically like a stranger in a strange land with where she does not speak the local language and is requires other people to translate into English for her. Um, and it is just a really well done kind of, you know, rear window body double type of thriller of that kind. So it's like very Hitchcockian, very De Palma, uh, very much of that ilk. And it's just like a really well done version of that type of story. And it is definitely a type of some genre that is like very near and dear to my heart. It's uh, I, I def, I love these types of, these types of movies and I can never get enough of them. So I was very happy to see, see they're still being made um, in some way or another. And so it's uh, I really dug watcher. I can definitely recommend it. It's worth watching. Nice. Okay. I like, I really like uh, the lead actress. Uh, um, what's her name? Mike uh, Monroe. Yeah. I really like her. So I'll definitely add this one to my list. Um, and as I alluded to earlier, I did, watch Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Can I just say that movie is really long? <laughs> it's I probably have, one of the shorter Marvel movies. I know, because it comes in at just over two hours, including all of the credits, but it just felt really long. Um, I really enjoyed... Okay. I didn't realize that uh, Scarlet Witch was the quote-unquote villain. Which came, oh, spoiler alerts? I have no idea at this point. Is this even a spoiler? Um, but I didn't realize that she was, quote unquote, the villain for all They, the they managed to actually keep it pretty hidden throughout the marketing. They totally did. So, I mean, she was clearly a big part, but like it was, I didn't realize that she was kind of like the central bad guy if there was one. Um, I, I thought it was fine. I really like the horror bits, and there was so. And you mentioned this in your review that there were a lot of like Sam Raimiisms, mm-hmm. and those are definitely the best part of the movie. Like when it goes into and there's like little snippets of it throughout, where sometimes it's just kind of like an overtone of horror, and then in some places it like goes all out. And I'm like, oh my god, they they went there, they let him go there. Um, I thought it was really really fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, I don't know. I was kind of disappointed that uh, they made Scarlet Witch the bad the bad guy, but I can kind of appreciate that they also gave her uh, a way to, um, I don't want to say redeem, but they did play out the whole storyline with uh, over the, 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 the course of, you know, what happened after, I guess, Endgame, and then what happened with the series and the kind of coming to a conclusion in the movie, I thought was really interesting how they kind of built that all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I, I, it's not my favorite of the Marvel movies, but I do like Benedict Cumberbatch and I like Dr. Strange and I like that it ha- kind of has like a, a quirky kind of comedic elements to the, to it, the, the, this franchise that I really appreciate. I thought it was fine. I don't know. Yeah. It's uh it's, it's one of the movies where you get more, of the 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 filmmaker's like unique voice, 
yes. in a Marvel movie than most yes. other Marvel movies. Agreed, 110%. 110%. It, it has a little bit less of like the, the same samey feel that a lot of the Marvel movies tend to have. Yeah, I, I just and there's some like little snippets, like some scenes that I I, I don't think I'm ever going to forget. Like there's um, at one point where they're, I think they were both to travel through a bunch of multiverses. We don't know this yet, or they land in a multiverse and they're looking at this cup of water and there's like waves, like ocean waves in this in this mug. And I thought, wow, that's such an interesting. For whatever reason, that scene sticks with me. Like that little image, just creeped me out. I don't know why, but it did. I, I really, really liked it. And I said to Dan, the um, the um, um, the Republicans must have had a fit when they saw the fact that our, like, the, one of the key players in the movie is a Puerto Rican girl with lesbian mothers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, did they have, like, a total fit when they saw that? Because I thought that that was kind of cool. Um, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. And I have to say, it looks really, really great on Disney+. Plus. It's like in I, – it's the first time I've seen uh, an IMAX-enhanced Disney Plus presentation. It looks amazing, and it mm. sounds really good. Like, it's a very nice presentation if you're watching it on – um, on Disney Plus, and you have a like a TV and an audio system that has Atmos, it's top notch. And I know this isn't really an option at home, but like especially in the theater, is uh, I was really impressed with the 3D in the movie. Mm. It's it's been a long time since I've been impressed by 3D in a movie, probably because I usually don't go for the 3D option anymore whenever it is there, but. I was really surprised and impressed with how good the 3D was for this movie. Uh, I could see that because there's a lot of moments where you could really get that in there and make it look really good. I I enjoyed it. I didn't know if I was going to like it as much as I, I didn't expect it to like it as much as I did. So I know that's not like a growing recommendation, but I just, at this point, I just don't even know what to say about Marvel movies anymore. Superhero movies in general, not just Marvel. It's just, I either enjoy them or I don't. This one, I enjoyed more than I expected to. So hey, there's no need to feel to champion any of these movies. Yeah, there like some might. I mean, I'm I'm fully expecting to be championing Thor because that movie looks so good. But we will wait. Okay, but yes. So Doctor Strange now streaming on VOD as well. I liked it as well. That's all I got to say about that. Uh, <laughs> Revealer. Yeah. So this is a uh, a new movie on Shutter. It's a Shutter exclusive, um, which had like you know really slick posters. I was like, okay, I'll watch this. Um, and the the story, um, how best to describe it? Okay, so the easiest way to describe this takes place in the eighties, um, and it's about a girl who works as a dancer at a peep show inside a, a porn uh, a porn store and outside are a bunch of like protesting religious nuts um, led by this one girl uh, who has like a complete heart on for the dancer and then basically the rapture happens and so now you've got um, 
basically what's left is the girl who's the dancer inside the porn store with the religious girl and they're have basically locked themselves in there and they need to try to like survive and people are turning into like zombies with snake tongues and stuff like that um but it it quickly like moves from there where they basically like tunnel through the floors and then end up in essentially like this giant like tunneled maze that they're trying to make their way through um where it just looks like variations of the same set that they've just rearranged every time they turn a corner and put some different lighting on um in the same way with it the cube is a very economical set um and it's got and they're being chased by a demon which is mostly just like a dude in a rubber mask with a rope um it's got some interesting ideas that it's playing with uh, the aesthetic is neat because they're going for, like, the score is all just, like, complete synth wave and everything is neon drenched. And so they're, like, really playing into, like, that sort of aesthetic, which is in a in a certain, like, subgenre area, like, really kind of hot and has been for a little bit. Everything's, like, drenched in pinks and purples and, you know, that sort of thing. Um and it's got some neat ideas about the whole thing. It's at least about something that you don't see every day as a horror film, but it's also like incredibly low budget. And the the script is just I don't know, it just it felt more like characters are doing stuff because the script needs them to go from A to B rather than for any reason that makes sense, including every conversation that they have. And it just the whole thing felt really stilted and kind of contrived and and there's not a lot else there because there's clearly not the budget to have anything else there. And so it's neat. It looks neat. I didn't love it. It's kind of hard to recommend. I don't know. I've seen other people, you know, really excited about this film, but I was I was fairly underwhelmed with it. Nice presentation, but not a lot of meat on the bone. Though I did almost spit out my coffee when you said, and then the uh, the uh, the the um, oh my god! What, what, and then what, the rapture happened. The rapture happened. I almost yeah. spit my coffee out. <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay, now this is interesting because I have not seen. Uh, this entire movie, but can we talk about Phil Tippett's Mad God? Because I've only seen part one and I saw part one. Oh God. I want to say like five years ago, six years ago. I don't remember when he released it. And then he kept working because he's mad. I didn't, I didn't even know there was a part one. No, um, so no, is so it basically like the first part of yes, this movie is like yeah, what he did years yeah. ago? Yeah. So so my understanding on Mad God, uh, the la- okay. So I make it sound like I've talked to Phil Tippett a number of times. I have, but for Spark. So we've been keeping tabs on the project for a number of years. So he was working on Mad God for I want to say I think it was like twenty two years 
on his own on the side as he was working um, on commercial projects. And then when the pandemic happened, um, his team basically still wanted to work. And so he had this young group of individuals that was at the studio. They didn't really have any projects that were ongoing. So they worked on basically part two of the movie. So the mad God, as it's being presented today is the work that he did 20 over like the course of 25 years on his own. And then the second part, which is the work that his team did over the course of the pandemic. Okay. So I've only seen kind of like that first part, uh, which was the work that he had done on his own over the course of uh, 25 years. And I haven't seen basically the second half of the movie. So I know that, you know, it apparently makes more sense. And I'm assuming there's probably some editing choices and storytelling choices that have changed the story. But all I remember from part one is it looked amazing. And it was always also really, really, really weird. Because <laughs> it's Phil Tippett. I mean, I mean, this... Absolutely nothing has changed about the film then. Um, If you were hoping that having the complete film makes it make more sense, then I think your hopes are probably going to be dashed. Uh, it's, It's kind of an inexplicable film of weirdness. And there are definitely like themes that you can sort of glean from it. But I hesitate to say that there's like any sort of sensible story that you can derive from, from what you're looking at. Cause it's, it, it, it's almost just like what the title says, you know, where it's just like you're watching essentially a nightmare on screen and it almost feels like it's entirely made of dream logic too. And it's really hard to kind of derive anything from it other than just a general sense. Um, that said, the the real lure of the film, the reason why you're watching this movie in the first place, is the fact that it is Phil Tippett, one of the uh, greatest stop motion animators alive doing what he does best and the animation in this film is absolutely jaw-dropping and it is gorgeous what he is doing and it is absolutely unique that it is this type of film where it's like i i'm gonna keep coming back to the word nightmarish because i don't know how else to describe it but it is just a, a, a mess of of horror imagery. Um, it is gory. It is violent. It is disturbing. Uh, it is upsetting in many places, and it's also like you're lulled in by just the beauty of the technique behind creating this, which creates a very kind of discordant and unique experience that. I don't think you're going to get from any other film. Um, I, I, I really, I hope it's obvious how hard it is. I'm struggling to try to describe this movie because it's a fairly indescribable movie. Um, I don't even know if I liked it or not. I'm glad I watched it and I love watching the animation techniques on display, but I don't know if I like the actual 
film itself. So it's um it's it's definitely a unique beast. And I'm I'm definitely I'm glad I watched it. The whole thing's on Shutter. You can you can see it on there. Um, they picked up the rights to it, but it's uh it it is an astounding work of mad brilliance. Yeah, uh, and that's the thing. Like for me, I the the appeal of Mad God was always kind of this curio from this master filmmaker or master creator who hadn't really done what he really wanted to do. Like he's always been work like, because you know, you need to work. So this was kind of his uh, long, long gestating personal project. And I think for me, that's kind of the appeal of it Um, for, for those that are wondering what it looks like. I mean, I think that to Ashley, the fact that you keep saying nightmare is just kind of the, the key term because it does very much look like this nightmare <laughs> that's just exploded on screen. So if you watch the trailer, you kind of get a sense for um, what the visual style of this is. It also reminds me quite a bit of Adam Jones's um, uh, work. He did the the sober video for Tool back in the early 2000s. Uh-huh. And the aesthetic is quite similar to this. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I'm i curious to see. I didn't realize it was already on Shutter, so I'll I'll have to make time for this down the road for sure. But mostly as a, a curio to be able to say, okay, I watched part one and two now. I watched Mad God. I'm done. <laughs> um, let's talk about some TV. Uh, I haven't been watching a whole lot, but I did. I have been trying to catch up with some of the of the of the Emmy contending stuff only because I have access to it for a short period of time. So I've been trying to watch the things that I don't have access to on a regular basis. So I watched um, the staircase. So the appeal, and this was the HBO max series, not the documentary series, which is streaming on Netflix, um, which I haven't seen. And now I kind of want to, so I'll have to make time for that at some point, but the staircase is based on the, I guess, the real life 18 or 16 plus years saga of um, Michael Peterson, who was a, uh, I think, a mystery writer who uh, basically went to prison for killing his wife. Um, and it's not quite clear from because I haven't seen this, the actual documentary and I don't really know any of the details of the story other than what I've seen on the show. It's a clear, it's apparently not clear whether he actually did it or not. Um, so this is executive produced by Antonio Campos, who also directs the majority of the eight episodes. He uh, directs six of the eight episodes and the other two episodes are um, directed by Lee Janik, who is a, uh, she did the, or she was very involved, might have been one of the co-directors or producers on the that trilogy that they had on Netflix, the horror trilogy from last year, like the 18, there was like three of them. One was like the 90s, the 80s, and then like 16 something. I don't remember what they're called. Um, stars Colin Firth and Tony Collette. It's very, very good. I mean, if you're, if you like Campos, then you know what you're walking into. It's a very precise drama. There's a lot of playing with perception and with the story. Uh, it takes a minute to kind of get into, especially the way that the, the series is edited, where uh, there are times where it's not clear 
whether you're in the past or in the present and whether what's unfolding on screen actually happened or if it's uh, like an interpretation. And I think it's by like episode three where they kind of start to dig into the, what might've happened that you start to put together that, Oh, nobody really knows what happened. So these are just, variations on what may have happened and it keeps changing as the show progresses. I thought it was really interesting. I really thoroughly enjoyed it and would highly recommend it. Colin Firth and Tony Collette are fucking amazing as usual. Um, Sophie Turner and Pat- Patrick Schwarzenegger are both really, really good as is Dane DeHaan. Like they play, there's also like this, added story of the fact that they have like a very blended family with kids from like multiple different relationships. I think there's like six kids in total. Um, And then there's this other layer because they also follow the documentary crew that actually shot the documentary, which is on Netflix. So like there's all of these different layers at play. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very well done and I highly recommend it. If you have HBO plus worth a look is my thought on that. I, I have not watched the original Netflix doc, but I feel like I know so much about this story. Mm. Um, part of it is because, like, we have a mutual friend that I guess knows, like, this dude. And, like, grew up near him. What? So I've sort of gotten, like, a little bit of, like, firsthand information sort of about the story. Um, and, uh, outside perspective from this and the other thing that i find kind of interesting is that the the netflix documentary was also kind of brought into question a little bit by the sense that the uh the dude in particular who's um the the guy like did he or did he not kill his wife apparently in a 15-year relationship with the editor of that documentary yeah which really calls into question um, the levels of objectivity that the doc can actually go into. Now, of course, what you're talking about is basically like a dramatized miniseries based on the same thing. Um, I find it interesting that there's been like so much TV made about one guy pushing his wife down the stairs it's, it's it's kind it of seems crazy. like such a small story yeah. to get so much material out of and it's i it's funny that you bring that up because the the HBO series also digs into that the fact that it and she's played by um Juliette Binoche uh, so, mm. I mean, they're not slouching here on uh, when it comes to, to casting, but it's very, very interesting, some of, like, the layers. And that's what I like about – I am going to watch the documentary, but I love the fact that they've the, – the, the HBO series has actually, like, incorporated all these various layers of drama over the course of the whole ordeal. And so you get to see the whole thing. And, I mean, it is dramatized, clearly, but I don't know. There's just something really interesting about – seeing the story from this perspective um i really really enjoyed it i thought it was quite good uh the offer yeah so this is a um this is a mini series and it's like you know that there's not going to be a season two to this because there's like it 
based on real life events. There is no follow up to this story, really. Um, but it's basically all about the making of the Godfather, mm. and it's uh, it's based on the um, based on the producer Al Ruddy's. Um, uh, I guess he wrote a book about all about like you know what it was like trying to make this uh, this movie, and it's actually like there's a lot of interesting, you know bits here it's a real it's a really interesting making of because it was the the parent company of of paramount did not want to make the movie at the time um even though it was like one of the best-selling books of all time it was considered that like gangster movies were box office poison and so that they were going to lose money making this movie and uh, they were determined that they needed to have, like, Italians making an Italian mob movie, you know, for one of the first times in Hollywood. And so they wanted to kind of, like, try to tell a different story. And it's one of those one of those things where it's like, okay, well, you know where this ends up. This ends up with, like, The Godfather got made. It got made successfully and became one of the most beloved movies of all time. And depending on who you talk to, will tell you that it's one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, so we know where this ends, but a lot of the fun comes from just hanging with the characters who are all real life characters. Um, and they're played in a much kind of broader way than just like we're making a kind of like pseudo docudrama style they're not doing that it definitely you're definitely playing this in a much kind of like wider way that people are going to be able to enjoy and it's almost written i don't want to say like a sitcom but there's a lot of comedy in the show um a lot of comedy of errors a lot of comedy that's just derived from the madness of trying to make any movie and i think that's one of the things that this show actually gets to the heart of that's really good it's just like how making movies is just constantly putting fires out and this series shows that really well um you have miles teller again playing al ruddy because apparently it's miles teller week um here on the podcast it's just in freaking everything right now and the real kind of shining star to me in the entire series is uh, Matthew Good. Um, oh, who's who, so good. Okay, who I'm, is playing is... Robert Evans. And Robert Evans is such a unique cat in and of himself. But the way Matthew Good plays him is both, it's, it's both on point and almost a caricature itself, which is kind of like how all the performances in the, in the show are. They all sort of like verge on this. Are you doing a caricature or are you doing an impression? And Matthew Good walks that line so well. It's like anytime he's on screen, it's just like, I absolutely adored it. Um, I've started a crowdfund so people can donate to me so I can hire Matthew Good to just come hang out at my place and pretend to be Robert Evans. Can I come? Yeah. You said Matt, Matt. You said Matthew Good, and all of a sudden I'm like, okay, where do I watch this, and how do I watch this next? Because yeah, exactly. Today. I love him. Uh, love him. Yeah, it's like the and there's I don't know. I really dug it. It's ten episodes. Um, I'm an easy mark for any 
movie or show that's about making movies is, you know, probably because I work in the industry. It's like, I've very kind of had up my own ass in that way. So it's like anything like the player living in oblivion, anything like that. I have to eat that stuff up. And the offer is no different. The Godfather isn't even one of my favorite movies, but it's, you know, I, I really got the into point. it, dug it. It's got a great cast. I really enjoyed this show. I thought it was a lot of fun. So I don't, awesome. I don't think you can go wrong with it. Okay. That is and, and the other thing, I'm just going to leave Frog on to this because I watched this and because I was having so much fun with Matthew Good playing Robert Evans, I decided to finally uh, get around to watching the documentary The Kid Stays in the Picture from 2002, uh, which is basically based on Robert Evans' autobiography. Um, and the documentary is basically just like an abridged version of his autobiography that he narrates himself and is done with a bunch of like footage and, you know, animated photographs and that sort of thing. Just him telling stories over the you know course of his career sort of thing. And it's, uh, it was really interesting. It's um, I've, I've always known about Robert Evans, but didn't know that much about the guy. So I've kind of had like this deep dive recently into into Robert Evans, and he was such a such an interesting guy who's like he was at once constantly like fighting to keep his career alive, but also was responsible for as head of Paramount um, one of the longest and biggest strings of not just successful films, but like all timer films that are still regarded as some of the greatest films in American cinema. And, um, and also like presented himself like he was basically like the Hugh Hefner of the film industry. And so he was like, he's a very weird cat that was like very, also very interesting there's like this line at the end of the offer that I think just like perfectly sums him up where he's at a party and he just says to some random woman who is like, you deserve the world and baby, I'm going to go get it for you. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's kind of like how he was. And it was just like, it's, it's hard not to just sort of be like sucked into the charisma. But like I said, like the, Dude also was was responsible for basically Rosemary's Baby, Love Story, Chinatown, The Godfather, Marathon Man, wow. uh, Serpico. It's like there was this string of movies during the late 70s, early 80s that Robert Evans was responsible for basically championing and making like the studio priority that no studio would have, where he was basically... There, there was this period of time when all the studios were floundering and didn't know what to make because nothing was successful. And then independent films like Easy Rider started to basically make all of the money and the and all of the huge production studios were doing did nothing. And they were turned upside down. They didn't know how to handle it. And Robert Evans managed to basically take that sort of like 70s independent film template or attitude 
and say, let's make those types of films at the studio and made some of the most capital A, capital C American cinema classic yeah. films at the studio at that time. It's like it's it's careers kind of can't really go understated. Now, OK, I'm going to be doing this double feature. This is happening. <laughs> but the offer has definitely happened. All right. Um, have you watched Obi-Wan? I have not. I've, I've jumped off the Star Wars train. Okay. I, I didn't watch Boba Fett, and I made the choice of not watching Obi-Wan. I just, I, I don't care anymore. Okay, good. I'm not going to talk about that either, but I will talk about uh, For All Mankind. Season 3 has uh, landed. Um, I think there are three episodes in, so this time around, now that they've conquered the moon, they're going to try to go to Mars. And of course, drama ensues, and now there's a three-way race between NASA, the Soviet Union, and a private company who are all trying to get to Mars first. It's really, it's. I love the show. It, I think it's really, really well done. It's moving at a really great clip. Um, the first episode kind of fast tracks through the majority of the 80s and into the 90s and season three is kind of unfolding in an alternative version of the 90s and of course because it's an apple show uh there's some interesting tech that is uh labeled apple which i thought was kind of fun i don't know i i like the show a lot i love the way that they're aging joel kinnaman and he's become this kind of like uh bastion of the the 60s space age um kind of like this old relic who's really good at what he does but he's also kind of a douchebag <laughs> but he's also still kind of likable it's a fine line and he walks it quite well and I, I they they haven't introduced any new characters for this season as of yet um it's basically like a returning cast from uh, season two but so far three episodes in it's shaping up real good They've just literally launched who's going to get there first. And then when they get there, what the hell is going to happen? Are they going to find alien life? Who knows? Maybe. That's all I have. I haven't de- uh, dove into this show, show <gasps> yet, but I really, it, it's on my list. And the premise sounds so interesting, even though I'm like not the hugest sci-fi nerd, but like the idea of like, doing an alternate timeline space race and like playing it out in like sort of like long form sounds so interesting to me. And I I keep meaning it to jump into the show, but also it just like feels like there's already so much to get through. Exactly. Well, and I mean, besides the fact that it's an alternate take on uh, the space race, it's also an alternate take that puts women at the center of it all. Um, and the way that they get around that is actually really, really interesting. Um, and it's, it's really has shaped the storytelling that's, that's happening. It primarily in the second half of season one and then through season two and so far into season three. So it's, uh, it's a really great, I really like the show. I think it's really, really well done. Um, it looks amazing. The casting is excellent. The storytelling is great. Thumbs up for me. Let's finish with the old man. I thought this was a movie. No, this is a this is a new FX series, um, right. which is uh, which stars Jeff Bridges as basically the 
the titular old man um, who's just living it alone with his dogs. Um, his wife has since passed, and we get some memories of her where she basically had like horrible dementia at the end and then died, and he's on his own now. And he's got a daughter somewhere that he talks with over the phone. And there's a lot that's kind of like, it's a show that just like alludes to you little pieces about this guy's past. Um, and that there's like something untoward about where he, he came from. Um, I'll just say right off the top, I'm only one episode into the show so far. I think there's three episodes that, that have come out. Um, I, I watched the first episode last night, but I really dug it. So I wanted to talk about it. And basically, pretty pretty quickly, someone comes to his house to try to kill him. And he gets the drop on him and kills this guy instead. And he's like, well, time to go on the run again. And so he just, like, packs his go bag and, like, takes off. And this is when everything sort of, like, kicks into gear. And obviously, like, this has been his life. And we sort of get this flashback from when he was younger with his uh with his his soon-to-be wife where basically it's you're not told all the details but it you know obviously cia is involved at, somehow and he's done some you know horrible shit and it, basically both him and his wife are being pursued and they're constantly moving and on the run and they make the decision um, what if we just like adopted entirely new identities and set down roots and like built a family? And I guess that's what they did. And it finally catches up to him, however many years later, like, you know, 30 years later or 40 years, however, whatever the distance of time is there, um, where he's like basically at the end of his life, but for whatever reason, forces inside the agency have decided to, that he needs to be brought in. And also sort of woken up is John Lithgow, who is basically the guy who handled the entire case with Jeff Bridges back in the day and thought this entire thing was tied off. But someone has decided that this needs to be opened up again. And so he's sort of brought in to consult. But his, he's both adversarial with Jeff Bridges and also sympathetic and wants to help him. So our first scene is with him basically calling him up and giving a heads up and saying, by the way, they've got a transponder on your car. Here's where it is. Here's what you need to do. They're going to be on you in five minutes sort of thing. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's just like it's I you, you probably get the the idea right away exactly like what type of show I'm describing. Um, I think what makes it really interesting is, like, he's not so much, like, Liam Neeson old guy where I'm supposed to also believe that he's, like, you know, an incredible martial artist at his age that can, you know, fight off guys. But there are fights, and it ends up feeling like like that uh, no country for old men sort of, like, war of attrition kind of thing, like, who could be tired out first where fights just seem to go on for like 10 minutes and everyone's exhausted at the end of it. And there's no real winner. Yeah. And it's, um, 
it's it's really got that kind of feel to it. And when I got to the end of the first episode and saw that the the pilot was directed by John Watts, it's like, oh, well, that feels like that makes sense because it really kind of tonally and aesthetically felt similar to Cop Car, which was John Watts' first film until he you know jumped into the Marvel universe and and made Spider Man his life for for however many years. Um, I'm really digging this show. It's really interesting and it's a nice little take on what is, you know, kind of like a, a fairly familiar genre, but it looks like it's just going to be like old man on the run pursued by CIA slash FBI. And aesthetically it plays out differently than most types of stories that we see of that kind, uh, where it feels like more grounded and realistic. And I'm, I really enjoyed the first episode. I'm looking forward to seeing where the show goes. So I'm going to stick with it. Oh, that's awesome. I like, I like the casting and I love the fact that it's uh, John Lithgow, who I also really like, and we don't get to see very often. So that might yeah, have to it's just like the two of them go like going head to head, even though it's just like just over the phone. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know. It's like, I love both these guys and I don't think I've ever seen them in a film together. I can't think of one off the top of my head. And it's just a, it's a nice little tete-a-tete between the two. That's awesome. And that's the old man on FX. That's it. That is the watch list. There's actually quite a bit of stuff in there. And hey, if you can yeah. manage to get through all of that television and all those movies in the next two or three weeks, then good on you. Plus whatever new is coming, because I'm sure there's always something new around the corner. At this point, I don't remember any of it until it's like hit me square in, th- in the face. <laughs> that's just the way it goes um anything else before we wrap things up no no i think that's it so come on by etcpod.ca uh check out links to all the things we talked about today we'll link to trailers and anything else that's of interest and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode until then oh wait i don't even think we did this at the beginning damn it i forgot ashley where can people find you (laughs) People can find me on Twitter at Ashley Lynch. And I am at the Marina. Okay, and now we can close the show. Until next time. Insert catchphrase here. Opening and closing credits are Happy Alley by composer Kevin McLeod. For more information, visit incompetech.com.